it's really important to know that if this person is capable of running a business, taking a look at the P&Ls and being able to just adjust when things are either going great or, or not going so great and just adjusting with those economic times, if they have this background in business, they already have that general cadence. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. So welcome back to the show today. We're going to complete the interview with Taylor Koo from PassiveInvesting.com. In this portion of the interview, Taylor is going to give us a little more of a deep dive into real world advice on becoming a passive investor and how to avoid making mistakes and losing money. So let's jump right into it. So for doctors, it's an interesting thing because I think it was less than a week after I finished med school Mm. that I got my first call from a stockbroker where they got your name off of some list. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, these guys got money. Call them and get their money. They didn't really? realize when they were calling you a week after you graduated from med school that your net worth was minus a really big number. And <laughs> you're now a resident making $20,000 a year, work 100 hours a week. They got to you about four or five years too early at that point. But <laughs> so you develop this aversion. You feel like people are always trying to, you know, I always joked with my wife whenever you had anything done around the house that you got the doctor price. Because they always just assumed and gave you the highest price and figured that you were working and you didn't understand anything else. We once said, it's funny, we were talking to a friend of ours who our daughters played soccer together and she's a lawyer. And I said, well, how does that work with you? Do you get like the lawyer price? She's like, no, as soon as they find out I'm a lawyer, they won't even, they're gone. They don't even want to deal with you. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) They're like, oh no, if we mess up, now we're going to be in trouble. So I was like, well, I guess there's two sides to that, but So in looking at this, and if you're talking to a doctor and you're like, you know, what advice would you give them from the standpoint of looking at commercial real estate? Yeah, that's such a great question. And also just to preface this too, I am not a doctor. As you heard from my (laughs) intro, I am an engineer. And so I can only at least speak to a certain extent of just my interactions with doctors that are current investors. Uh, But one of the big things that big takeaways that I always hear is just freedom of time. I mean, y'all have worked so hard for so long just to get to where you wanted to be. And the fact that you're going to have to continue to work hard and not be able to leverage just other pain points. Because like for a doctor, I went to this conference, the Passive Income, and which is a great conference over in California, highly recommended to all the other doctors. But it's one of the things that they were talking about is especially if you are a doctor, I mean, you're busy and you have a lot of hours and trying to manage other rentals on your own, it takes a lot of work and it that could also take a lot of time away from family. And this one doctor, actually the two doctors that I've spoken to that really just astounded me was one is if you love what you do, that's great. The other mm-hmm. thing that this guy was talking about was once you finally become a doctor, he now trying to figure out how to get out of being a doctor after all those years. And it sort of just caught me off guard just because, I mean, y'all do so much just to help the community and help people out, right? It can be a tough thing. And I think that, I mean, it was a lot of the reason why I started this podcast was when I was kind of in the same spot and you feel the golden handcuffs, like, okay, I finally made it here. I'm making money. I can't stop. I can't do anything else. 
And it was when I first started talking to a few docs who had commercial real estate investments and that they were talking about passive income. And when they reached a point where they started to become work optional and maybe not even not a hundred percent work optional, but half time, or I don't need to stay till eight o'clock at night and I can change whether I'm okay in a practice on my private practice with a little more variability or whether you take a job that gives you more time freedom, but that it opens up those opportunities to not be chained to your job. Yeah, absolutely. I know that this is sort of an interview for me, but I'm also very curious too, on your end, what was sort of the catalyst and turning point to where you needed, you were like, "Ah, I think I need to do something a little bit different and out of the ordinary. Once I really started having a good income and had some managed accounts, and I started looking at those accounts and seeing how much money wasn't happening. Although each of the fees from the person managing the accounts, and there were fees for the whole series of things they were investing in, and then half the time their plan to de-risk things involved multiple mutual funds, which each had fees. And none of these fees were huge, but they added up. The stock market made this move, but I'm off by 4%. And then the other side was from a tax standpoint that you start earning a big W-2 and looking for different ways to offset some of that from a tax standpoint. So those were the big two that really pushed me back because I'd gone down the real estate road before and had done house hacking and had roommates. And that was the first place I ever owned. Mm -hmm. And we moved out of a house and decided to rent it. And it was a total disaster. Oh, no. First time as landlord said, we'll never do that again. (laughs) Coming back to it going, okay, how do I do this without having those headaches again? Right. Now that you bring that up too, because this is what Dan always said, Dan Hanford, the the guy who was a chiropractor beforehand, he had his own practice, ended up scaling to four practices debt-free. But one of his big pain points was just writing very large tax checks to the government. And so... (laughs) He just wanted to find a tax, more tax advantage way of building wealth and got to start as a passive investor in apartment buildings. So to your point, yeah, y'all pay so much in taxes. It's ridiculous how much <laughs> y'all pay in taxes. Yeah. If you look at that number, it can be painful. All right. I'm going to dig into some of the other things in our list here. So yeah. your eight red flags for passive investing. Yeah. So the article that I actually have is based on seven red flags. And this was created by Dan Hanford, the guy that we've just been talking about this entire time, because now he is a passive investor in 80 different deals with 17 different operators. And it was originally seven and he recently just added an eight. So I can just go down the line. Also, this is his passive deals, but who runs PassiveInvesting.com, an active operator in a large amount of deal. Yeah. (laughs) Very, very large. So his job is active investing, but he's also passive investing at the same time with other operators. Okay. Yeah. And then that's where the foundation of just this list has come from just through his own experience and what he would be, what he looks out for when he's investing with somebody else. So the first red flag is if they don't have a successful background in business. 
So with the type of deals, especially in syndications, I mean, at the end of the day, these are all businesses. So it's really important to know that if this person is capable of running a business, taking a look at the P&Ls and being able to just adjust when things are either going great or not going so great and just adjusting with those economic times, if they have this background in business, they already have that general cadence to just know and make great, I mean, I wouldn't say great, but still fiduciary moves to make sure that their downside's protected. So just having a background in business is is a huge one. The second red flag is just being a part-time operator. It's okay to have, I guess, like a couple people that are part-time into the business, but when it comes to investing in these large portfolios, whether it's multifamily storage, car washes, or hotels, you don't want somebody managing millions of dollars part-time. You want them to make sure that they have a very close eye on what's going on. I mean, you could buy it right, you can finance it right, but if you're not managing it effectively, the whole deal can go south. So you want to make sure that you have somebody full-time. And this also leads into the next point as well. If there's only one managing partner, that could also be a red flag. It is a red flag just because if that one person leaves out, jumps out of the country, I mean, you have nobody to be able to contact, right? And so that is... One of the scary things too, especially with the nature of these deals, there is a little bit of a lack of control when it comes to the deal. And so there's a lot of trust. And if that person just leaves, it's scary to think how you're going to be able to get your money back. The fourth red flag is if there's no preferred return. So we talked about this a little bit earlier on in the conversation, but that preferred return is the closest thing that you can get to a guarantee. So if there is no preferred return, and I've seen operators that do well without a preferred return, but at least like for me and the type of deals that we're looking at, we want to make sure that the investors know that their interest and their investment is first. So it's investor first returns. Mm -hmm. And we just want to make sure that we're doing a good job in order for us to be able to continue to just build wealth together. So basically Uh, that that, uh, the operator is saying, I'm going to pay you before I pay me. Exactly. Right. Okay. And then the next red flag is this actually might be a little bit of a hot take because I know some operators do this as well. And so you would just have to take a little bit of a deeper dive into the underwriting, but it's underwriting for a refinance that's modeled into the projections. Mm -hmm. So for us, we don't underwrite for a refinance. So typically we'll just use a value add multifamily deal. They could stabilize the property for two years, and then maybe at the end of two years, they would refinance it. And that would be in their projections. Now, we don't like doing that just because we see it as just a little bit too risky. We don't want our projections and returns to be based off of the refinance, just because in case interest rates go up, like as they were doing, (laughs) entire business thesis, business plan, and investors' returns can be thrown off from it. And we just think it's a little bit too risky. I know some other people that have invested with when there is a refinance and they're able to refinance, but it's just something to be hesitant about as you're looking through the deal. And then the next red flag is how your distributions are treated. So making sure that your distributions are a return on capital, not of capital. So return on capital is just essentially saying that you're getting a return that where your principal is not being dwindled. So return of capital is when you're getting these distributions, but every single time you're getting a distribution, your position, your equity portion in the deal is actually becoming less. And that's not very good. So make sure that your distributions are return on capital. 
And then the seventh red flag is making sure that the operator has skin in the game. You want to make sure that they're invested alongside you. Uh, the typical standard is anywhere between 5 to 10% of the equity needed to raise, but you want to make sure that their interests are aligned. And then the last one, the eighth red flag, and this is the one that's going to be added, an article that's going to be out here pretty shortly, is if the operator is using variable rate debt, make sure that there is a rate cap. Rate cap means that in case interest rates do go up, it has a ceiling and it can reach that cap and it's not going to go up any further. What's happening right now is that there are some operators that didn't buy a rate cap. And so now that their debt service is so high, they can't give out distributions just because cash flows are too little. So just something to keep in mind. I mean, I just went off a little bit of a tangent for these eight red flags. But if you're looking to receive this article, I'd be happy to send it over. I mean, I guess they'll, they'll be in the show notes, right, Mike? We can put them. Okay. Yes, they will. <laughs> Sounds yes, good. they will be in the show notes. The link to the article, or I guess my contact information will also be there as well. Yeah, I've got all I your can contact send it over stuff too. there. Yeah, send that over and I will make sure it gets put in the show notes, the link to the eight red flags. Yeah, a few of those key things something that was that alignment of interests and looking and going. So for them to succeed, I need to succeed. And not just in the payout of this deal, but even the longer term, that if this was somebody who's just looking to get my investment now and that goes sideways, but if their whole business model is set up that they want me to succeed today so that we can continue to succeed down the road. Now, those alignment of interests, I think, is a big deal. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So we got another list here. Four we, ways. What? We don't have to go like by list by list. I mean, it's no. up to you. Those are just different ideas that we can just talk about. No, no. Through. I like these. These are good because. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and I think they're good lists because I've seen them before. And for somebody who's just getting into this space, they are a nice little checklist. And even for somebody who's spent a little time in the space to kind of go back through the checklist again and go, am I checking all the boxes? That for me and doing due diligence on a deal is I've got a checklist and it's not my checklist. <laughs> <laughs> the checklist, I feel like that's been passed I, around I so many the, different yes. operators. I got my checklist from an experienced commercial operator who was put together with his partners. And the list has been vetted and has been added to. And, and just like you're the eighth red flag, he'll send you a message that goes, oh, wait, here's the updated list. Because then when somebody in the whole network has something go sideways, they'll be like, hey, here's one more. If I would have had this on the list, we would have caught this ahead of time. And so the list grows. So these lists, it's kind of like a pilot's flight checklist. Those checklists came from somewhere. And when something happens, they're like, that should be on the list. Get that on the list. <laughs> it's dynamic, right? It it's, is. It the, just continues to be added. And they get longer. And then sometimes you're like, well, let's put these two together so you don't have the 57 things. I like this one. It's the four ways a limited partner can have control in a syndication. Yeah. And the idea of control. And this actually stems from a master class that our team hosts with me and our director of investor education, Whitney Elkins Hutton. When jumping into a syndication, one of the downsides to it is the lack of control when it comes to a deal. But when we talk about control though, and you start to unpack it, it's I think they mistake for what control actually is. Because with what control is, you're determining 
the behavior or supervise the running. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can eliminate every single risk that you have. It's really just the mitigation of risk. And so, I mean, we were talking about the stock market earlier. The idea of control is we, I mean, we can control our portion, right? But we can't control what the company actually does in the stock market. Like if Elon Musk sends a tweet about Dogecoin, I mean, you see Dogecoin go up. I mean, we just can't control what Elon does. But there is, I guess, the control that you can have with, I mean, I guess, selling like the liquid option of just being able to sell your shares in a short amount of time. But just the idea of control, it's just the mitigation of risk. And so with syndications, even though you're not controlling the results of the day-to-day operations of the asset are, you can actually take just four different steps of what you can control to help mitigate your risk as much as possible as a passive investor. And so one of the first things you can control is your goals. So whether you're looking for cash flow or backend equity, I mean, you can take into account you know, what your goals really are. So like if you don't necessarily need the cash flow and your risk tolerance is a little bit higher, development deal would might be a great option for you. But if you need the cash flow and your risk tolerance is not so high, then maybe a development deal isn't the best thing to do. So just taking into account what type of goals that you're looking to accomplish first before you even talk to the operator, I think is good. And then also you get to choose, you have the control of choosing which operator you like. You'll be able to decide whether those goals are aligned with their assets, with their opportunities that they're getting. I mean, if we can go back to just the whole development example Right. If you're looking to invest in the operator only has development deals, but you need cash flow, might not be the great operator for you, as simple as it is. And so you get to decide who aligns with your goals and if they align with you. You also get to decide the market. Third thing that you can control, the market that you're investing in. It's not like anybody is forcing you to invest in a very specific market, but there are operators out there that invest in a lot of different markets. You get to decide if those markets align with your investment thesis, with your business plan. And I mean, some of the things that you can look out for is, I mean, is the population increasing? Is there a strong diversification of employers? Is it a landlord-friendly state? Is crime and poverty declining? You get to decide what type of market that you're actually investing in. And then the, the last thing that you control is the actual type of deal that you're investing into. And so whether that's a development deal, whether it's a long-term five to 10-year hold, whether it's an evergreen fund, you have the decision to choose what deal works best for you. And you get to decide if the business plan really works. So it's, there's a lot to unpack, but if you're just going to at least the entire summary of the four things you can control, you can control the goals, you can control the operator you decide to invest in, the market you're investing in the type of deal. All right. So I think that would be good for, especially if somebody's new, if they can answer those four questions ahead of time, mm-hmm. we'll help them know what they're looking for. And there's always more deals out there. The number of people I see, and they get all excited and they're like, oh, I got to get in on this one. Like, oh, this is going to fill up. If you miss one, there's always another deal around the corner. Yes, a hundred percent agreed. And we talked about this earlier. It's such a strong reiteration of just dating the operator first. There's no rush to when you're going to jump into a deal. And if someone is pressuring you to jump into this deal, yeah, maybe that's the ninth red flag. Yeah, because if they're most good operators, they've got plenty of investors. 
And if there's a good match between you and them and their deal fills up and you miss the deal, would you give me a call on the front side of your next one? And that's what I know a lot of people will do. They'll be like, hey, if somebody misses out, I'll reassure them, don't worry, it's not the last deal. And we'll make sure you're going to get priority on the next one. Don't feel like you're missing the boat. This is going to be the last chance to get this kind of return. It happens over and over again every day. Every day. There's still deals being done. So, all right, Taylor. Well, if you got anything else to add, anything important? Anything important? Ooh, yeah, it's a great question. No, nothing, nothing on mine. Other than that, I mean, if you wanted to stay in touch, my contact will be in the show notes. Honestly, this is, Mike, this is just a great time just being on to the show. Uh, and I can't wait to see just more guests come on to the show. It's been a pleasure and it's going to well, be awesome just seeing this podcast grow. Well, thank you for being here as the inaugural interview. Yeah. What do you want from me? <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. Here. Thanks, Taylor. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you got value from this episode, you know other surgeons are hungry to become job optional and you can help them by sharing this content today. I'd also love to serve you better, so I wanted to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you take a moment and leave an honest written review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. And number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help you. Schedule a call and we can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.